Our good friends at Johnny-O welcome you to this episode. Now, the iconic Johnny-O clothing brand logo of the surfer and his longboard first caught my eye several years ago, but it's the signature Johnny-O style where West Coast meets East Coast prep that truly changed the game for me, and I've been wearing Johnny-O ever since. And now our listeners can use promo code RICHTAKE at checkout for 20% off your first order at johnny-o.com. That's 20% off the regular price. Price at johnny-o.com. Use the promo code RICHTAKE at checkout for 20% off your first order. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted built and inspired by the role of sports in their lives here's your host here's your host Weaver. this is episode 127 thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen the physicality of sports and especially american football engages a certain type of warrior mentality But Ovi Muhaley is proof that creating such singular labels is a mistake. After an all-ACC career at Wake Forest University and being rated the number one fullback in the nation by USA Today, Ovi would be drafted by the Baltimore Ravens in the fourth round of the 2003 NFL Draft. He would earn All-Pro honors in 2006 before signing with the Atlanta Falcons in 2007, becoming the highest-paid fullback in NFL history at the time, where he would earn All-Pro honors again in 2010 and was also selected to the Pro Bowl. His achievements also go beyond the football field, where he founded the Ovi Muhaley Foundation, which emphasizes assisting quality programs that educate the youth on the environment. Ovi's been named a top five Echo athlete by Planet Green and has been recognized as the NFL's greenest athlete for his commitment to the environment, where he continues to share his passion for the environment to kids through the Gridiron Green comic. Here's episode 127 with Ovi Muhaley. Ovi? Yep. Thanks so much, man. I greatly appreciate you letting me steal some of your time and you're looking sharp as always. Trying to. Yes, and you look like you could still play right now. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I could. My niece is otherwise. Yeah. And my shoulder. And my back. <laughs> so all of these things are holding you back a little bit. Yeah. I mean, 39 years old. I think I, 10 years NFL, 20 years football. It's probably enough concussions for a lifetime. So I'm, I'm good. I was blessed. How many concussions did you have? Jesus. Um, well, I found out that um, when you see stars, those are s- small concussions. <laughs> so if you kind of every time you see stars, and we're not talking about stars on the field, no, athletes. No, we're talking about like, different stars. Things like blink, like that. Stars. They're doing probably like one a week. So I mean, I mean, once a week uh, in the NFL. I was ten years in NFL. I say probably saying fifty to a hundred is a conservative estimate. But you talk about like big concussions where. My helmet's taken away, and uh, I lose moments of time. I've had maybe like 10 big concussions, probably eight during games and three in practice where it's just, all right, you're not even practicing for uh, – They're just sitting tomorrow. you down. You're just sitting down, and I have the headaches and everything else. So it's something to where now, being away from the game for – you know, since 2012 when I retired, well, I was forced to retire. No one, no one chooses to retire unless you're like Peyton Manning and Jerome Bettis and you ride off, a, right, you know, ride off on a horse and win the Super Bowl. But uh, when I was forced to retire, um, it, was, it was rough for a while, but I, I don't feel any lingering effects. In fact, uh, I applied for the concussion lawsuit. They said I don't have quite enough brain damage to uh, get the uh, minimum amount. Which I guess is good. That's, but, but yeah, that is time, good. If I'm, if I'm close, though, just give it to me. That's right. You know, I'm going to run my head into the How wall. How do they measure that? Uh, Are they giving you a test? A bunch of different things. We have a memory test, and we have um, we fill stuff out, and uh, we uh, talk to people to see how we're doing. And uh, I guess they put a bunch of numbers together and see how bad you are. And, uh, you know, I have guys who I know who have gotten the money, and from – Early onset Alzheimer's and dementia to the shaking, to the headaches, to the light sensitivity. I don't want that money that bad. Um, but it was a little unsettling when you said you don't have quite enough brain damage. I mean, we all know you can't play football and be unscathed. You have to have some, right? Yeah, there's, there's no way to play this game and be 100% healthy because uh, 
don't think God made us to do this all day, every day, even with a helmet on, having that brain hitting uh, moving objects and stationary objects while you're running as fast as you can. Not quite normal. It's fun. It's enjoyable. Very wildly popular and um, financially beneficial for all sides involved. But as far as safe, eh, safe is relative. But it is. I get asked a lot what you do all over again in a heartbeat um, because it gave me everything, not everything, but it, it set me up for uh, some amazing things. And I met my wife that way and my kids and I have some lifelong friendships. But my kids, people ask me as well, all right, you do it all over again. Would you let your kids do it? I was like, that's a big question. I don't have to answer that right now. My son is five years old. (laughs) Um, I do know that I'm not doing peewee football. You know, people left and right, they they choose whatever they want to choose. I think that he can do what I did. I didn't play football until I was like in seventh, eighth grade. So if he wants to play seventh, eighth grade, we'll talk about it. I like for him to wait till high school and then, uh, you know. But all we're hearing now is that. Oh, you got to start them early, or they're never going to be able to get a scholarship. Yeah, I to hear college. that. You got to I, I, I specialize know. and start yeah, them really I, I don't early. Know enough guys who just have that natural talent, and my son's my son, so he's going to have natural talent. And <laughs> I love he, how you say yeah, that. And, and when he, of course when he, he is. Yeah, when, when uh, ninth grade comes around, eighth grade comes around, if he wants to play football, he can play. You know, defensive end, quarterback, you know, receiver, DB, whatever he wants to play, he'll be great at it. Flag football is what I'm. All the way open to so you can learn some football skills you can do that you know fifth sixth seventh eighth grade and then uh contact and start ninth if you want to and i'm praying that they find a way to make it safer because the more information that comes out the more my wife is just like heck to the knob uh, our baby ain't playing that she, uh, she's worked with the raiders she's run uh nfl players foundations she's seen guys she's seen a lot go from you know bentley's to bus passes and go from having all their the wits about them to being a little bit not not all the way there as they should have so there, there's pros and cons to the game um i love to focus on the pros because i mean there's pros and cons to anything in life and right. i had an amazing opportunity to do something that you know very few people get a chance to do and it's something that i always treasure yeah and do you think that uh, to make it to the elite level, I know I've talked to a lot of different players, basketball, football, baseball, whatever the sport is, in terms of making it to the elite level, there's one thing of having the physical abilities. Yeah. It's another, the mental side of making it to that type of level. And I know it takes a lot of dedication, a lot of discipline, but also is there a little bit of to make it there you got to be a little bit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go with, like, you got to be a special breed of awesome. Like, you got to be a little crazy. Uh, yes, you do. You do have to be a little bit crazy. And I uh, I, I get, get laughed at at times because when um, I play ball, I started this in high school. Like, when I'd go out there, I only spoke words when I had to. Most of it was just grunts and growls and snorts and... <laughs> And people always say, dude, you crazy, make it off me. And I go, Rah! and they're like, God, that, what is wrong with this dude? I played linebacker, too. In high school, I was a tailback and led the league. In, uh, You're on both yards, sides. Led a league, or like top three in the league in tackles. I was a kickoff returner. So I went to a small private high school. Uh, I was the only African-American in my grade. Uh, um, I was the um, only one on my football team, obviously. Um, times I was the only one on both sides of the field. So in Charleston, South Carolina, playing like Pinewood Prep and Thomas Hayward and Orangeburg Prep. And it was, uh, you know, interesting times. Uh, it was to the point where, like, like you mentioned before, I just enjoyed playing football because it took me away from, from everything. And uh, when I played, for the most part, I didn't notice I was the only black kid in my grade. It was you just didn't. a bunch of guys uh, playing football. And, Were you able to drown out any negativity yeah, there, uh, that there, you might have been exposed um, to in terms it, of you are the only African-American? It, was, uh, it wasn't that much. I, I think on the team, I had one or two instances with, with people, and then you know I shut that down, and people realized that, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, a black boy, but it's a large black boy. It's a very large African-American child. That's a losing battle. That we do not want to mess with. And the majority of the kids there uh, were for me. 
you know, racism is everywhere. And so obviously there, there's some at the school uh, and some we play other teams and, you know, they'd be calling me the uh, N word from the other side. I mean, in like 1996, like it, it's, it's, it's not going anywhere. Racism is, uh, is here to stay. It's just, you know, how you deal with it. Um, but it meant a lot to me that I was able to go out there and just dominate and to talk about being a little bit crazy, uh, go out there and show people that I am the king of the crazies and I am <laughs> going to, you know, yelling and screaming and just, you know, hooping and hollering and, having the performance to back it up it, it was it was it was fun for me and I, I kept it on to uh my nfl career now did you do that intentionally to maybe even provoke fear absolutely into the opposing team well, it, it, was, it was two things um one my uh i i loved my um my, my heritage, uh, the, the fact that, you know, not, I wasn't just uh, African-American, I was Nigerian. And so my parents uh, were Nigerian immigrants. So they uh, very proud of their heritage, uh, African and being Nigerian specifically. I'd watch all types of, uh, uh, you know, warrior type of uh, uh, movies and documentaries of, about Nigerians. And so I thought of myself as not only a, a African warrior, but... Uh, uh, royalty, and you know, we, the, the running joke is that all Africans think that they're kings and queens. I, I personally think that that's a, a great uh, mindset to have—that that you are royalty, and that I, I felt like, it, why would these people even think that they could play at my level? And it was a combination of having that that warrior spirit, where I was yelling and uh, and hooping and hollering, but also having that level of confidence to where. You can't guard me. You can't tackle me. You can't, you know, even see me. You're not at my level, and I think that's the the, the almost border, not only border, like arrogance, arrogance that, yeah. that I had. So I was going to say, where that, did that come yeah. from? Where did, where it, did this it, it, it feeling came, come from? It came from my parents. My, my, my dad busted his ass to um, be uh, the best OBGYN in the state of South Carolina, but it was a lot of hard work, which I, I saw him do. Um, wasn't at home a lot, was always studying, uh, has like two or three degrees and a bunch of specialties. And, but when we were in, in New York, I was born in Boston, we moved to New York, we had a lot of debt. We had a lot of uh, um, you know, loans from, uh, from med school and from college that he had to pay. And uh, we had one bedroom apartment and um, I think the government sent him to Texas. We all moved to Texas so he can help pay off some of that debt. I, I just saw him work. I saw him struggle. I saw him with all the bills and him and my, my mom getting into it about, you know, he was still wants to take us on vacation. She's like, no, we can't afford vacation. <laughs> and, and, and so I think a lot of my, um, that spirit comes from just seeing him fight through it, constantly fighting through it, never giving up, not even understanding how to, uh, you know, quit uh, and, and, the fact that him and my mom both came here and fought so hard to give us a better life and sent us to a private school that costed, you know, ridiculous amount of money. I think it was like 15000 for kindergarten back in like 95. Um, it, it showed that they really valued our education and the opportunity for us to succeed. And I didn't want to disappoint them and what they have uh, sacrificed for, which is why I gave my all and everything I did, especially in football. Now, was sports, though, was that a big part of you growing up? Because you mentioned you didn't play until 7th or 8th grade. But. Yeah. Um, I, I, I did soccer. I did, I did everything. My, um, my aunt represented Nigeria, uh, Auntie Vero, in tennis uh, a while back. So my parents put us in tennis. I was, uh, you asked me, what's one thing no one knows about you? Several things I don't know about us, but I put like, for the Falcons. I was a doubles tennis champion in middle school. <laughs> okay. So me and Susanna Royal were doubles tennis champion in middle school, and we killed it. Like I had, uh, unfortunately, the, the, the shorter white short. The oh, short, I need white, to see some on, of those pictures, and man. I was, uh, I was like, like, like middle school. So I was like 12, 13. I was up there and just spiking it in the front of the net and scaring people too and still doing not as much. You're doing hollering. your chance. No, but I had um, like, you know how Serena grunts when she hits the ball? Like I had a, rah, rah, and like, gosh, dang, why is he so angry and just oh, aggressive? But it, it, it worked. So I played a lot of different sports. Um, 
and I, I enjoyed a lot of sports football. It wasn't until middle school, but just the competitiveness of uh, playing sports, period, and being able to let loose with all this, this energy you have, uh, I think, uh, helped me uh, in my early development. Was your route going to be to follow your dad, to be a yeah. doctor? No, I, I went to um, uh, Wake Forest, I got a sports medicine degree. I had a concentration in pre-med, took uh, cell biology and biomechanics and organic chemistry. And uh, I was the only football player at Wake Forest that was cutting up cadavers in the basement and putting pins in the different tendons and uh, the muscles and then running and jumping the fence and, uh, you know, get to practice 15 minutes late. My parents had to call up Coach Jim Caldwell and tell him that uh, our son is not playing unless he's allowed to pursue uh, his medical career because some of my classes would cut into practice and they're like, you can't take it. And my, my dad's like... We didn't send him to you know, Ohio State or to you know, Clemson or Florida State. We sent him to Wake Forest because we want your word as uh, that, that studies matter more than, than football. Yeah, education first. Everyone says that, but we know, we all know that that's not true for the majority of schools. You mean it's uh, not student-athlete? No. It's it, athlete-student, it, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so um, they called in and they got me clear to do that and – uh, I did that because I wanted to follow my dad's footsteps. I wanted to, uh, he had Mahalian sons or Mahalia Mahaley uh, for his practice. And um, I made a difficult decision because my sister is a, she went to med school as well. And she's a psychiatrist. And so she had all her MCAT books. She gave it to me my senior year of college. And uh, I, was, I, was, I was doing good and I was an All-American, but I still didn't feel like a fullback. You know, they're not really drafted fullbacks. It's not a big opportunity for the NFL. So I was still laser focused in on doing the um, medical thing. And so I, I got through like the first like 50 pages of the uh, MCAT prep book. And I was like, this is a lot of work. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm like, how'd you do it? My sister, she took the test three times. Um, yeah, it, it's hard. Um, and my coach was uh, like, uh, I think it was coach Jim Grove at the time. And he was like, hey, uh, uh, Obi, we got some scouts out here. I'm like, scouts for what? Like uh, NFL scouts. I'm like, why are they here? Like for Calvin Pace, because Pace you know, played with the Cardinals and Jets for forever. Uh, like, no, nah, they're here for, uh, yeah, for him, but they're here for you too. I'm like, really? Nah, I don't know. I was like, no, like this coach, this coach, this coach, we'll talk to you. So I closed the MCAT book and never opened it up. But um, I work in medical sales now, so I still help my dad uh, with certain things on the business side. But he definitely was a little bit upset that I chose to go to the NFL initially. Uh, than medicine. Yeah, what was that conversation like? I mean, it was just because my whole life had been geared up to uh, go to medical school. And with, yeah, and sports was just a pathway exactly, to help you get there, right? Free education so I can better prepare myself uh, to go to medical school. Uh, with immigrants and or Africans, it's uh, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're an engineer. Choose one. <laughs> uh, I went to the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award. Uh, and, and I saw Foye uh, Olukun, um, the Falcons uh, guy who got three onside uh, kicks in a row or was a part of it. And Which that's crazy in it, itself. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. He, he went to Yale. Cause I've seen him for a long time. I've always on Twitter and everything. I'm like, yeah, my Nigerian brother, my Niger, Niger boy. And so I finally met him and we were talking. And he was like, uh, what's your dad do as a doctor? I said, what's your dad do? He's like, engineer. <laughs> he's like, what's your dad say? He's like, he said, doctor, lawyer. I said, or engineer. <laughs> and so it's not just me. That's what is expected of us. Uh, football is not really, it's becoming more, but it's not really an acceptable profession because they feel like it's not really a career. You do it for yeah, Why do two, they think that it's not a Because it's a two career. or three years. You, you can't play football forever. You can be a doctor forever uh, into your 70s. Uh, but football it's going to stop. and yeah, Obviously I, very limited. I played for 10 years, which is much longer than most. Most guys play for, I think it's two and a half years, which is the average. That's why they put the uh, pension at three and a half years. Uh, you're vested in three and a half years, and most guys never make it there. But that's like, you're going to break your bones, you know, concuss yourself, and, you know, be gone in a couple of years and, you know, not... Basically out, wasting yeah, two years. Yeah, miss out the opportunity to go to med school. Uh, so lasted a lot longer than he thought. When I got my big contract with the Falcons, I was able to, you know, get buy him a house in Nigeria, get my mom a car, and really <laughs> was able to to take care of them like I wanted to, and to say thank you the proper way. He was uh, he, he was okay with it, you know. So it all yeah. worked out. Did you have extra motivation then, in terms of trying to prove to your parents that 
they, you know, they were believing in you, yeah. no matter what you did. Of course. But to prove to them, the and that's was a yeah, the, option. yes, that you could make it in football and do more than two years. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, it was to them. It was to myself. Uh, to all my my haters. Uh, I had. You know, I'm I'm a confident guy, but at the same time, I um, I'm never the the loudest in the room or I, I didn't come into my own until I got to Atlanta because um, in college, especially being a fullback, I was a second class citizen. Uh, I wasn't given the, all, the respect that I feel like I deserved. And people like, oh, you know, it's funny because and I'm not going to call them out, but several guys on my Wake Forest team were like, oh, I'm going to the league and I'm going to the NFL and, you know, scouts are going to come here and, and they would go to like extra uh, training in the offseason to prepare themselves for their football career. And, uh, and they'd be like, oh, I'll be like, you better get uh, work on your major because you know, you're never going to the NFL and you can't block me. And some of that stuff crept into where I was like, maybe I'm not that good. Maybe, you know, maybe I shouldn't even think about the NFL. And uh, even during the senior bowl, during the combine, it was just a lot of negativity towards my ability, I guess, because I wasn't as loud and boisterous about, you know, oh, I'm an NFL prospect. Yeah, come see me play. Come see me play. You're going whatever. But I wanted to prove to my parents and prove to myself and prove to all the people who said that I couldn't do it because their voices were very loud, even though we say, I don't hear what negativity, I shut it off. It's hard to fully shut it off, uh, especially if there are things or doubts that you've had in yourself as well. And so from the weight room to the film room to uh, the off season to the workouts, it, I was just always thinking about proving them wrong and, and showing them that I could be one of the best at my position ever. At what point in your career did you doubt yourself the most? God, um, when, I mean, from the the. the Every minute uh, until I got my uh, big contract with the Falcons, uh, you know, six years, $18 million, highest paid fullback contract in history back in 2007. I think Lorenzo Neal's getting like 1.5 a year and they gave me $3 million a year. You know, why? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I'll take it to this day and every day, uh, especially when these third string linebackers are making $3 million a year. And uh, I was making three at the time. But it was, it was amazing. But, um, uh, it, 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 you know, going back, it, it's something to where I just, I just, wanted a, I just wanted a chance. I just wanted a shot. I just wanted to show people what I can do. But the hardest uh, time was when I got drafted, I was a third-string fullback. So what team in the NFL keeps three fullbacks? Name one. I couldn't. Yeah. Uh, they only, their teams only keep one fullback. So in Baltimore in 2003, they drafted me at the fourth round, but they had Alan Ricard. He was starting fullback block for Jamal Lewis. They had Harold Morrow. Harold was a little bit older guy. He's been around for like 12, 13 years, but he was a special teams ace. He also played fullback, a little bit of tailback if necessary. But then I was the rookie. I was the third string fullback. So from the get-go, I was like, all right, why did they draft me? Why did I go somewhere else where there's only one fullback? There's two here, and I'm the third one, and they're not getting rid of the starter because he's been starting for the last – through four years, not get rid of Harold Morrow because he's a special teams captain and leads the team in tackles last year. So, again, why am I here? I, I was just nervous the whole time. I doubted myself the whole time. Um, I showed him what I could do my first year, and then the very next year I got injured. Uh, and so I was on injury reserve my second year in the NFL. And what, what happened to you? Um, pulled my hamstring against the uh, Steelers. I was just really excited uh, running out kickoff cover. And it was like a sniper shot my shot me, and I just gotcha. hit, hit the ground, and like I pulled it off the bone. My hamstring filled up with blood. It was all purple and saggy and nasty. And uh, my rehab, it was just it was it was rough. Where I gained about twenty pounds, so I was I got up to two hundred seventy pounds when I play at two fifty, and uh, that was in the off season. So I was trying to I couldn't run, I couldn't you know, but I had a little money, you know, I was making. 250000 300000 where two years before I was making zero. So I'm like, I'm going to Ruth Chris. Man, I'm going to you know, order some pizza. I'm, I'm living you know, large. Whatever, I'm living large. Oh, my gosh. I can go to restaurants and not look at the prices. I can just order what I want. So I was eating good. And it was 
probably one of the hardest things once I got fully healthy to say, all right, I'm fat. Uh, I am slightly depressed. I am being told by a lot of people, because my agent, if you're fat behind don't get uh, in gear, you're going to miss out on a huge opportunity that people are, you know, dying for. Like you, have, you're in the NFL, you're in that locker room, and you're about to, you know, piss away this opportunity. Yeah. So that was probably one of the times I doubted myself if I could even do this. But the coolest thing ever, um, one of my um, the guys I respect a lot and that I was a fan of injured himself uh, during the offseason, and so we rehabbed together. So I had Deion Sanders, primetime himself, in the cold tub with me with the exact same hamstring injury. So we did our rehab together. We did our pool work together. We did our, our uh, you know, ice and stem and stuff in, in, the, um, in the treatment room together. And we built a relationship where I, I tried to play it cool. You know, I was – you know, inside, I was just like, oh, my God, yeah, but I was like, well, all right, we're both peers. We're both NFL players. That's right. You know? yes. Yeah, you're all You can have some confidence. Yeah. So I, 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 faded, I faked it till I made it. Um, so um, uh, I just asked him, man, like, how you deal with, you know, adversity? Like, how you deal with uh, trying to come back, but your body not doing what you want it to, you know? Uh, and just how did you become primetime? I was like, I'm watched a lot of those documentaries and see a lot of stuff, but just hearing it from his mouth uh, was, was amazing. And more than that, he just took time every day just encouraging me, uh, giving me different uh, tips and tricks uh, mindset-wise. You mentioned before, uh, mentally, it is, uh, it, the mental game is a huge part of football, and it is. And he gave me everything he had uh, and just dropped several nuggets to where it did motivate me to push through the traditional exercises I was doing and try to find new ways and more ways and acupuncture and yoga and Pilates and trying anything and uh, really believe in myself and, and not having any regrets. Cause the last thing you want to do is to, you know, not heal as fast as you can, not go out there and really show the best version of yourself out there and regret if I could have done more. So, um, Again, back to answer your question about doubting myself. I doubted myself in uh, 2004, had a wonderful experience uh, with uh, Prime and just my parents and everybody really poured into me and uh, came out where I showed them that I'm ready to go. Sergeant fullback got injured. Uh, they put me in. Well, they tried to put Harold Barr in. They realized that he's a special teams ace. Fullback, not so much. He was like 235. I was 250. I was you know, rocked up and ready to go and destroying everything I hit because I wanted to show them that, hey, don't put that other guy back in. <laughs> I'm the new young, you know, stud in town and Jamal Lewis is going to run behind me. And from that perspective, hearing some of the wisdom and just some of the things that Dion was sharing with you, yeah. were you ever in a position then where you could reciprocate that back to other players coming up? Yeah. Ten years in the NFL. Now you're, I know. you're the wily veteran, right? It was so weird. <laughs> when around like year six or seven, or once I you know, came to Atlanta and got that big contract, um, uh, the first year was rough. The first year was the year that Michael Vick went through uh, his, uh, the dog stuff. And so we had you know crazy Bobby Petrino as a coach who left three days early, three games early, showed up to work, and just your coach is not there. And was it, gone. It was the weirdest thing. So that year, um, I couldn't really mentor anyone because everyone – it was just uh, – a shit show. Uh, I don't know if kids are watching that. I can say shit, but it was a shit show. It was it was it was terrible. Um, everyone was blaming everyone, and a lot of blame came on. Why would you give a fullback eighteen million dollars? Why would your largest free agent, free agent acquisition not be a second wide receiver or a defensive end or a D tackle can plug it up or a great offensive guard? You bought a fullback, a fullback. And then to make things worse, especially as fullbacks are, yeah, they're a diminishing yes. need now, right now, now. You know, I was you know one of the best goddamn fullbacks you know uh, in the Falcons history. Actually, no, I was the best. I was the first Pro Bowl fullback in the franchise history, and had the most All Pros. I was high graded by Pro Football Focus. I was on the All Decade team by ESPN two. So I'm that dude. But no one knew that in 2007 uh, because they only played me. I think it was like 18 percent of the snaps. Because we were losing all the time, so they were always throwing the ball. So I'd go in, I'd sit there at games and go quarters without even getting in. 
And uh, there are fans who are, who are calculating how much I was making. I was making $3 million a year for every snap. So doing like, like over my head, like $100,000 a snap. Like, you know, why did we get him? This guy's a bust. He's whatever. And I couldn't even defend myself because I wasn't on the field long enough to, to do so. So the first year, I couldn't do much. But um, second, third, fourth year, um, I'll get into year seven, eight, nine of my career. Uh, I'd been voted to the Pro Bowl. We had a young fullback come in. And it was a uh, uh, lightweight adorable how he was just such an awe of me. I'm like, I'm a regular dude. Like, no, nah, you're the fullback who put us up on the map. You're the fullback who raised the bar for all of us. Like, yeah, man, I, I watched a video on you in college, uh, and I saw you on the paper. And when I heard I was coming here, I knew I wouldn't get the starting job. I was happy to learn underneath you. And I was like, thanks, man. I, it, it, was, it was humbling, you know. It had to be. It, it was truly humbling because – that's the way that I looked at, you know, Mike Allstott or, or, you know, Lorenzo Neal or Max Strong and these great fullbacks who uh, I've had a chance to meet in the off seasons and, and just talk about how much they've meant to me because I've watched their film and I used to, uh, you know, pattern my game after them. I look at their techniques from their hand placement to how they dip before uh, contact and the whole lot. So uh, I, I poured into this young brother and answered all the questions he uh, I could and, Unfortunately, he got hurt and didn't even last two years in the league. But it's it's almost like, what did I do to deserve to avoid injury? I had my injuries, but never that, that career-ending injury that um, other people didn't didn't get. But it takes a lot to play in this league, league and play for a long time. And uh, I, you know, back to why I wouldn't, I do this all over again. I, I wouldn't take away uh, for anything because it was an amazing experience that allowed me to do things that very few in the world gets to do. Were you still in love with it though, even as you progressed in your career? Uh, years nine and 10, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I actually, I told my uh, team, I was like, man, this is getting, this, this is getting harder as I get older. Yeah, because <laughs> the body, age thing yeah, does your, something your body to you, right? snap back like it wants to. Now, I loved Sundays. Uh, I wasn't in love with practice or, or training camp. Now, there are days in practice where you know, we really enjoyed it, and uh, we had fun. And you know, uh, the the film sessions were always iconic because we acted the fool, Michael Turner and Jerry Snorwood. What do you mean, act the fool? Uh, oh my gosh, we <laughs> we <laughs> we always had a different um, uh, some different quotes written uh, on the on the whiteboard for coach, our running back coach. Like we write because he had all these crazy um, analogies that he tried to. Um, Try to say is so we always had stupid stuff on the, on the board, and uh, we all thought we were artists. So we we draw like, literally like we were children. We we were 25, 27, 28, 30 year old men that were children writing stuff on the board and drawing stuff on the board, and, uh, and we just have a, a fun time ragging on each other. And it's something that uh, that's part of the camaraderie, yeah, it, right? It's definitely part of camaraderie. But we we acted a fool all the time. I I, I, I love that part. But I was tired of all of the unnecessary contact. I, I see what Ray Lewis was talking about because um, I came into Baltimore. I was a scout team fullback. I'm trying to make a name for myself every hit. So every hit is a Super Bowl for me. He was like, calm down, young buck. Because first, well, first of all, I got lambasted by Peter Bulware and Bart Scott and Ed Hartwell and Adelius Thomas and Ray Lewis and, you know, even Ed Reed coming and chipping me every now and then. But uh, these – it's number one defense in the country I got drafted into. Uh, they just won the Super Bowl like a year or two before. And I didn't get good until the second year because um, it was just a learning curve from being the best fullback in college football to play against all the best defense, and the best linebackers. I always said that they're, they're a big reason why I did so well in Atlanta because games were easy. Practice was was hard, and I was trying to because you, know, you were going up against those the guys. hardest people, yeah. And so I was giving my all to, to them. And my, around my second year, they're like, "All right, all right, we get it. You're good. You're one of us. <laughs> Slow down. You have to get. You have to try to kill us, you know, because we got games. Like we're trying to play on Sundays. And uh, for me, the same thing. There are uh, times where I was like, "All right, I get what those old guys are saying. Now I'm getting older." Calm down, young buck. I'm not trying to hit you to try and, you know, win the Super Bowl. Like, let's just get in good fits. Let's figure out where we're going. Let's have a good pop and good. Uh, that's it. And that's an interesting balance because 
there's these guys that are trying to make the team, yeah. right? You and can't then, tell them to, to slow down because not. their coach doesn't care that you're trying to save yourself for the game. They want to see if this kid can uh, battle with the big boys. And, um, you know, I just got tired of uh, what we had, like Lawrence Sidberry. Sidberry, uh, I see Sidberry all the time around town. We laugh about this. He came in as a rookie defensive end, and he was trying to make a name against me. And we actually had some epic battles. I remember the first time he actually won against me, oh, he did like a victory lap and was talking about that forever. He was like, I took down the, the uh, two-time All-Pro NFL Pro Bowl fullback over Mahaley. I like, dude, I slipped. You got me one time in practice. <laughs> Calm down. But, you know, that, that's what the young guys are trying to do. They're trying to, in practice, prove themselves against the vets so they can get a chance to play in the games. And um, I, I didn't miss that uh, as I got older. I was like, all right. I just want because yeah, you were be, already a proven entity. Yeah. So I was like, I don't. I want to definitely, you know, go out there and you practice how you play. So practice hard, but I'm not trying to practice to where I'm messing my body up for what it really counts. What was the travel like? It was fun. I, I love travel. Like, um, I love the longer the flight, the better because I guess you have to just woosah, put on my little Bose headphones, the noise canceling stuff. You know, watch my shows. You know, I can whether they have. Not Netflix back in the day, but I download shows to my laptop and just watch movies, catch up on stuff, you know, sleep, uh, play some games. Guys were gambling in the back. It was fun. I really enjoyed uh, it's like that camaraderie we had in the uh, film room, but for a whole weekend. So um, away games were much more fun for me than, than home games. But uh, uh, the ni- nice hotels were cool. The, the team meals. Oh, gosh. They were amazing. They have everything you can want. They, they had the French toast and the waffles and the bacon and the eggs. They had the chicken and the steak and you had the salmon and you have all the desserts. And so I, I get there early and, and eat up and have my, my, my little ritual. Uh, it, it's it, it was fun. I, I really enjoyed that. It's part of the stuff that um, I miss. But um, so what was your pregame ritual? Were you a guy who needed music to get motivated, to get pumped up? Yeah, and- I had a weird combination of uh, gospel and Fred Hammond. Uh, and then I had uh, all things Rick Ross and all things Lil Wayne were two my two favorites. Anything Lil Wayne got me got me hyped. I, I was just I still am a big fan of his work. But I'd do that. I, I'd switch to, you know, uh, Donnie McClurkin and Fred Hammond and Kirk Franklin and all my gospel stuff just to remind me not only who I am, but whose I am. Guys, that's really important to me. And uh, I grew up in the church. And uh, Yeah, so when did faith become important to you? From day one. Uh, it, it, it's I don't remember not going to church on Sundays. I remember trying to hide from my parents and say, I'm sick. Like, no, you go to church. Uh, you know, even the days where I don't feel like I, I drag my kids to church because knowing who you are and having that sense of purpose is one of the most important things that uh, you can do uh, in, in this life because you get caught up in trying to please people when, you know, there's only one person you got to try to please and he's already pleased with you. And just uh, honoring him and giving him the glory is something that should come natural. But, um, uh, it's easy to do when, time, when things are going good. It's hard to do when things are That's going right. bad. And so training your, this will take when you train your body, training your mind and your spirit to be able to deal with when things go bad, when you do get hurt, when, uh, you know, uh, things go left is uh, of the utmost importance. And so, that's when you should lean on him absolutely. and your faith the most. Absolutely. Not when things are going great. Absolutely. And uh, it, it was interesting. One of the, uh, the, the hardest years for me uh, was one of the best years for me, Kyle. I leaned on him. You know, I, I, I dealt with some stuff where I had some just, just a lot of hateful and uh, incorrect uh, lies being told about me by people. And I took it to heart because, you know, how social media works. You'll have one person say something, and then another person say something, and they think it's truth. And so people are just ragging on me for something that I didn't do. And it's getting to my parents, it's getting to my siblings, and I'm just really feeling down because I'm just like, I thought these were my friends, I thought these were people who were supporting me. And uh, I leaned into God even more. Uh, my circle of friends came a lot, lot smaller because I realized who you know believes in me versus believing uh, a gossip. And that same year, I, I was already 
I got I got an All Pro distinction in 2006 before I came to the Falcons, um, but I never got to the Pro Bowl. I really wanted to go to the Pro Bowl, and that year everything came together. From I have the most touchdowns, uh, my tailback Michael Turner is a t- top three again or top two in the league in rushing. We were winning, uh, and my wife uh, slash foundation director and my publicist did a huge campaign for me for the Pro Bowl, and it actually worked. And I was uh, at Stone Mountain at a restaurant when my agent called me and said, I'd like to first to tell you that you got um, inducted into the Pro Bowl or, or chosen to be the Pro Bowl. You're, you're the NFC's uh, uh, leading fullback, and you're going to Hawaii. And it was just... You know, that, that, it was a huge God moment because I remember my, um, my wife and my pastor telling me, you know, um, in some of the darkest times, uh, that's where God's going to show himself uh, in the greatest ways. And uh, that, that's what he did for that season, which kicked off a lot of other great things for me. And then that just gives you more strength mm-hmm. in believing and having that faith, right? Because yeah. you're seeing that, all right, I trusted in the dark times and look what opened yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, same thing when um, my career ended because, like I mentioned before, no one retires yeah. from football. Uh, very few do. They told you you're retired. Yeah, they, they told me I was retiring. <laughs> and I kept on trying. I felt it was, um, it was just, it just pissed me off because I knew I could still play. I knew that I was better than the worst fullback in, in the league. Uh, yeah, I got an uh, injury. I got an MCL injury. I came back and uh, I was a cap cash league and people like just don't play use fullbacks they feel like they can do with, without them and I uh but even though you were somewhat tired yeah. of the grind you still had enough left in your tank you felt absolutely no I, I wanted to play I, I was tired of, of the uh of course as soon as uh, I, I leave the game they get rid of two a days <laughs> cut down on practice <laughs> make it a lot easier all, all, all the things that could allow me to play like five years more uh get instituted but no, I had about three to five years. I mean, I wanted a third contract. The second contract is everyone lives for. That's where you use your big contract. I wanted a third contract because I wanted to get to the point where I felt like uh, financially I would ever have to work again. I, I could if I wanted to. But it, it didn't happen with the injury. And so I tried out for the Miami Dolphins. Uh, it didn't work out. I tried out with the St. Louis Rams. They gave me four weeks. And Jeff Fisher, because I asked him, um, I was like, why'd you cut me? If it's because you're saying I'm not the best fullback, I'd love to sit down and watch the film with you because I watch film on my competition every day, every practice to make sure that I was making more blocks than he was, I was catching more balls than he was, and I graded myself every single day because I, I knew that if they cut me, I wanted to show them here is the proof. So if you're going to say that it's because I didn't do my job, then I'd like to see understand what is doing your job mean to you. And he's like, you know, like you were the better fullback. He's like, we just um, need to keep our special teams guy um, on the team, and it it hurt that me. Had little, to rub you the wrong it, way. It, it, it rubbed me the wrong way, but at the same time, it did. It, talk about regrets. That's what I had when I came to St. Louis. I'm like, I'm over Mahaley. I'm a two-time All-Pro fullback. I play fullback. Like there are a lot of young kids that can run around and play special teams, but you know, even Stephen Jackson said. I've never had a real fullback. I'm excited to have you there. I think it was a boy, uh, Britt Miller. He was a linebacker that was playing fullback here and there, and he was just real excited and a great try-hard guy, a blue collar, but he wasn't blowing anybody off the ball. He wasn't knocking anybody back, and that's why I didn't practice. Even with my knee being like 85%, I still was much better than the competition. So when I got cut, it really hurt. That's, again, uh, leading on God. I was was in tears. I was so bad because I was just like – I can play in this league. I can still play in this league. And you know I can play in this league, but because he's a second-year player and his, veteran, his minimum is you know, 300000 my minimum is 900000 you're going to... So it's more of a business decision yeah, and based on personnel. Yeah, and he was like, uh, he's our special teams captain once again, and you said that you really didn't want to play special teams. I said, I, I, said, I would if you need me to, but you know, I don't want to because I like to focus on where I can be the most used, which is fullback. And, you know, is going, that what you regret then as yeah, far as the Rams? Absolutely. You know, because my body was, was, uh, was hurting. At full, Ten years of fullback, I was like, the hits I'm going to take at the fullback position are going to be enough. Running down there like a kamikaze and running to a wedge uh, isn't something that, I, again, I, really, I want to do. So 
uh, especially his coach, uh, like he asked me, hey, Haley, I need you there. I was like, coach, you got all these young kids there. I was like, I'll do it if you need me to. But, you know, the fact that I wasn't, he said, a team player uh, and the fact that this other guy who was a linebacker and played a little bit of fullback was uh, captain of the special teams. He's like, he's been our, our ace. He's getting a lot of tackles. You know, if you're going to play fullback, we need to get the most out of you because you're only playing 30 35% most of the snaps. And so, you know, yes, you're the better fullback, but we need somebody who's in our price range and more all around. So thank you for all you've done. Uh, get your stuff, and we need you out by 3 o'clock. It was, uh, it was rough, and it just weighed on me for weeks, for months. I was back home uh, look, um, hoping that Falcons would call me. And another weird thing, uh, uh, and my wife says all the time, uh, she just never understand the call. Like, Thomas Dimitrov called me, but he called me to tell me that they signed another fullback. And it was the weirdest thing ever. Uh, I was just like, I, I don't know if he, because I saw him at another, uh, I think the Walter Payton Man of the Year event, because I was Walter Payton Man of the Year, I think in 08. So every year I go to that. So even uh, my first year out, I said, Dimitrov, I'm trying to, you know, lobby to get him to get me. I was like, hey. You guys got uh, some fullbacks here, Lusaka Polite, Mike Cox. Yeah, they're good. They're, they're not me. We all they're know. They're not right? yeah. <laughs> They're not me. I was like, uh, even with my knee injury, I'm, you know, one of the best fullbacks out there. I see the opportunity. I'm staying in shape. I'm ready to go. I was like, Dimitrov, talk to uh, my agent, Todd France. You know, call me uh, if, um, if there's an opportunity for me to come back because, you know, Mike Turner, he knows me. They love me. You guys had your little experiment with Brady Ewing and didn't quite work out. Uh, I, I got a lot left in the tank. So when he called me, I'm excited. He called me to tell me that he got another fullback and said that, you know, we, uh, we love fullbacks and don't want you to think we don't, you know, but we, we, hired, we got one. And it was the weirdest thing. I was like, are you trolling me? What, what is this? So Tuesday, I'll never know what happened uh, and, and why that happened. But it, it was frustrating that I never got a chance to actually play in that year where I felt like I could have. Um, Another thing that was weird, I was working at 99 the game, uh, and so I was going inside the locker room and I was interviewing players three months after I was cut. So ma- imagine how awkward. And I was interviewing Thomas Dimitrov and Mike Smith, and my uh, my producer had fun with it. He was like, uh, he brought my questions out, and my questions would be, so um, what do you feel like you can do to improve your run game this year? I noticed that last year uh, it was uh, you guys were getting so many yards per carry and yards per game, and and this year it's dropped significantly. Is there anything else you guys can do? <laughs> and my uh, <laughs> he went to Michael Turner. He's like, hey, get out of here, man! Like, what you want to do? Want to answer the question? Try to get, get me fired? I like, no, I like, no, this is the question I have written down here by my producers, so they, they just want to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so. We, we, we had fun with it, but, you know, we had fun with it at the same time. I, it was just, it, it, it was difficult. But, uh, again, uh, it was an opportunity to start my, my TV and radio career. I did it for, you know, four or five years. Worked with uh, um, CBS and worked with Sports Illustrated and worked with Fox Sports South. And even called games at Raycom. Got a chance to call a game in my alma mater, Wake Forest, which was, was exciting. Um, well, it had to be a thrill. Oh, it, it was fun talking to uh, the new coach and, just going around the uh, facilities, and, uh, and again, it was like with adorable how the Wake Forest Diva Deacons looked at me as like, "Oh my God, you're over Haley." I was like, oh, "Oh, me? Oh, yes, I, I am." But why are you so excited? Like, nah, man, you were Wake Forest legend and All American, and uh, you know, played in the league, and you battled against Ray Lewis, and you went to the Pro Bowl. And I'm like, I guess I did do that, and uh, so I'm interviewing these kids because. It used to be that no one goes to Wake Forest and goes to the NFL. Like it's Wake Forest not a football school, and we've uh, we've changed minds. We uh, you know big four winners this year uh, beat NC State, UNC, Duke. We you know we own the state of North Carolina, uh, beat Florida State. Like we we're handling business this year, and one of the smallest schools in Division One, yet we're one of the most powerful football uh, uh, teams. We were nationally ranked for several weeks in the in uh, this season. But, uh, you know, even going back there and, and uh, calling games, it, it all started because uh, I had an opportunity with uh, the game at CBS and dealing with the Falcon stuff and just, you know, really 
understanding how to be professional in that space. So everything happened for a reason. Uh, it may not be your plan, but you know, it's God's plan. So his plan's always perfect. And when did God put it in your heart to start your foundation? Um, he put it in my heart, uh, in 2008, I was just, uh, I had a foundation, somewhat of a foundation called the Ovenmaley Project. And I was underneath someone else's larger foundation umbrella. I didn't want to deal with the uh, paperwork. And we just did what everyone typically did. We did the turkey drives. We did the shop of the jocks. We just did the, you know, educational stuff, trying to, uh, help, uh, kids be the best version of themselves. But it wasn't until 2008, where I turned my foundation into the first NFL player foundation to focus on the environment. Uh, and I did that uh, two reasons. One, I was um, a big fan of uh, a cartoon and comic called Captain Planet. And very people knew about that, but I just love the fact that they had an African character named Kwame that was African like me and was doing really cool stuff to fight for those who couldn't fight for themselves and to protect uh, the planet uh, so that, you know, people who are most vulnerable wouldn't be affected by it. And it was also a cool cartoon. So I was a big fan of that. And, you know, fast forward 2008, I meet the creator of that. So I meet uh, Ted Turner. I meet Laura Turner Seidel. I think Arthur Blank had an event where uh, he invited me out to. And I got a chance to meet those uh, uh, two icons in the environmental space. And they were surprised that a 6'2", 250-pound fullback knew the whole jingle for their <laughs> uh, intro, their, their, uh, their cartoon. So I was like, oh, Captain Planet, he's a hero, gonna shake pollution down to zero. I was like, wow, you're a big... I was like, I am. They're like, so what are you doing right now to um, continue to help the environment? I'm like, uh, nothing? Like, but, environment? Yeah, we don't yeah, need to worry like, about that. I was like... You, you guys, you guys, and Al Gore and whoever else, y'all, y'all, y'all figured out. They're like, actually, no, we we don't, and we need your help. We need a different voice. We need someone who can bring a different perspective to it. And they went about just educating me about you know different environmental justice issues, what's going on with climate change and global warming. I, I kind of knew about it, but I didn't really know about it. And um, what, the more I understood, the more I realized that it affected people who look like me more than anybody else, yet uh, people who look like me uh, aren't really involved in being part of the solution. So I started my foundation to educate and inspire the next generation of environmental leaders. We use uh, comic books. We use uh, green tailgates. We use uh, technology, entertainment, a lot of fun. But sports is the center of that. You know, we, we try to uh, take advantage of the wonderful thing we call sports because I don't care, black, white, uh, Republican, Democrat, rich or poor, we all can love sports. And if you love sports, you got to, you know, love the environment because you need clean water to play sports, you need clean air to play sports, you need God's green earth to play sports. And that's something that we feel like everyone can get behind. So we use that as a catalyst to get kids throughout all our programs to care more about sustainability. And we also talk about how you can make green by going green. There's a lot of kids who we talk to they don't have the luxury of uh, being able to care about the environment. They're, they're worried about, you know, putting food on the table, not polar bears. You know, they're worried about uh, things that are affecting them right now. So they're usually the people who have the least to do with the our current situation. They have the least carbon footprint, yet they feel like sometimes, you know, people are telling them, you got to do this and do that and do whatever. And I just tell them that it, it doesn't matter, you know, who started it right now, you know, our earth is burning right now. Say if your house is burning, you don't say oh, it's your fault. It's your fault. No, you grab some water. You put that thing out. You go, you get out, you fix it. I said, we need to fix it. So I want to show you how you can plug into the green economy. There's lots of green jobs coming up and I don't feel like people of color are adequately being invited to the table or being uh, told that here's an opportunity to make green by going green and to make a difference. So we're literally putting comic books in schools. Yeah, so it's a lot about education. Yeah, putting comic books in schools as a platform to have sustainability STEM curriculum, focus on the science, technology, engineering, and math in the sustainability space, and have a gamification uh, where you can play video games and be tested on what you learned. So there's no kid that I know who wouldn't read a comic book or a textbook and be tested on that by playing a video game rather than using pen and paper. So it's a really cool concept where we got some uh, some great sponsors. Always looking for more. Uh, <laughs> looking for great sponsors that want to help us do that because 
Uh, STEM crisis is you know, pretty clear, but the sustainability STEM crisis is one that hasn't been addressed but needs to be. So uh, we're doing that. And uh, oh, um, my foundation got turned up several notches when my kids were born because uh, they were born. My daughter, Nasia, was born premature and she couldn't leave the NICU because of the air quality in Atlanta. So when you realize that I made millions of dollars, I have the house, and the car and the fame and everything else, but I, I can't throw money in the air to fix my um, daughter's situation. It's because I haven't focused and because the, as a society, we haven't focused on environmental issues um, that my daughter, you know, if our doctor didn't check the air quality, she could have come home and died because her lungs were underdeveloped and the particles in the air, the pollution in the air at a level to where it was deadly for her size. So that just messed with my mind as a father. Because yeah, all know, you want to do is you just want to bring her home, bring her home. and protect yeah. her. And as a father, that's my job. Like I had yes. the best car seat. I had the, uh, the, the, the best uh, uh, you know, car, car. I had the food. I had everything. But I didn't have the whole air quality thing figured out. So it made, it made me double down on my foundation and really not want to do it just, just for you know, humanity and for kids as a whole, but for my kids and for their future and uh, for the lives that, that they want to lead. And so my daughter's not dealing with bringing her daughter into the world and worried about air quality. So the best way to do this, it's a numbers game. If I can bring hundreds and thousands of more kids, especially kids of color, to this issue to help solve it, you know, why not? And sports can do that and I can do that. Yeah. So what else has sports meant to you in your life then? Um, it's uh, opportunity, uh, hope. Um, yeah, it makes me happy. Um, you know, I still play pickup basketball with friends. Uh, I play tennis uh, at my neighborhood with uh, um, some friends. Uh, my son just yesterday was out with my wife at a, uh, uh, Target and picked up some baseballs and made my, my wife throw him baseballs and hit them in the aisle. She's like, I think our son wants to play baseball. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, Are you like, okay with that? I'm okay with that. Shoot, $300 million contract. Have you <laughs> seen those? That's right. Oh my gosh. It needs to become a pitcher. They have, they have lifetime health care as well. You know, we, NFL gives us five years and that's it. Um, no, baseball is definitely something that I am fine with. So uh, sports to me, it just, it's just, it's, it's love. You know, I, I love the game. I love, love the sports and it creates relationships that uh, can last a lifetime, uh, not only with uh, colleagues, but with my kids. Uh, my dad wasn't the biggest sports guy, but he used to come to my football games and cheer like crazy. My mom would cheer like crazy. My dad would, uh, you know, throw footballs with me, uh, play basketball a little bit. My sisters played basketball. I supported them. I, I think sports gives you an outlet to uh be the best version of yourself, whether it's you competing, understanding the value of teamwork, uh, the importance of being a leader and how to be a leader. You take all of those skills and you can use them throughout the rest of your life. And I think nothing else can give you that. What about words of wisdom? Any type of quotes, mottos, or life advice that has meant a lot to you? Um, words of wisdom, man, I, I, I'd say probably some of the most important stuff has just been the constant encouragement from my parents uh, and a lot of it having to deal with um, you really know who a person is by how they react to adversity, you know, because every, everyone's, I mean, you're nice when things are going good, you know, everyone's cool and things are all okay, but uh, how you respond to adversity and challenges says a lot about you and that's when you really need to, to show who you are. So, uh, that's been important because adversity is always there, challenge is always there, and I want to make sure that I'm someone that my kids and my parents can be proud of. So rather than flying off the handle, rather than losing it, rather than feeling sorry for myself, uh, which it's going to happen, but don't don't sit in it, don't don't stay there. You can you know, all right, this sucks. You know, um, we dealing with a situation that we don't didn't intend to deal with, but it, it, it's responding in a way that you you have hope and you know that there's like the end of the tunnel and you know that you, you can do more. So it's a very uh, convoluted answer for words of wisdom. But my, my parents, they just always encouraged me. They always uh, uplifted me. They always told, told, them, told me that they loved me. Um, and I think that's probably it. The words of wisdom is, is to always uh, 
love others and to know that you're, you are loved. My daughter says, you can't fail love without OV, so dad, I know you love me. <laughs> I said, that's cute. I like that. That's yes. cute. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so that's it. I think just, you know, love one another and love yourself too. Because uh, I, I, my wife, uh, a lot of people I know, we get so focused on, um, you know, being superheroes to everyone else, we forget to uh, love ourselves. My, my dad called me uh, uh, last week because um, I'm on six different foundation boards. Uh, I have a medical sales company that I work with. I work with my foundation. I, I'm not very good at saying no because I want to uh, help as many people as possible. And my dad's just like, you know, son, you've been in three different states in the last three weeks. Like, you know, take care of yourself. Like, go, you know, get a massage. Go, uh, you know, uh, relax and or meditate or get some time for yourself because that self-love is so important because you can't be your best for others if you're not the best to yourself have to love yourself first absolutely yeah ovi yeah thank you so much no problem man. appreciate it man thank you thank you having a warrior mindset obviously is crucial when playing a sport such as american football and fans love this type of gladiator sport but as ovi has shown that warrior mindset can be applied in many aspects of your life regardless of what your passions might be and as great as it is to have that mindset it's the love that you give to your passion and to others that truly makes you a warrior now that finishes episode 127 and more of our conversations can be found on any of your preferred podcasting platforms and you can also watch some of our episodes by visiting our rich take on sports youtube channel where you can easily subscribe and remember focus forward so we don't live in the past all the best everyone you've been listening to rich take on sports the sports podcast with life visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening.